Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. The Hellmouth Con. The Hellmouth Convention is back, and it's hosting a spectacular event in the place of all places, Torrance High School, the shooting location for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Join us June 15th, 2024 for one day only. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center and the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship. Visit thehellmouth.org for details. SoonerCon 32. Oklahoma City's longest-running premier pop culture convention returns June 21st through 23rd, 2024. Prepare for three days of cosplay, crafts, tabletop gaming, and legendary guests, all in the friendly town of Norman, Oklahoma. To give back to the community, fundraisers and a live charity auction will be held. Visit SoonerCon.com to reserve your membership. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. I like to use this show to showcase the various ways that we can use fandom to make our real world better. And there are very few real world locations that do that better than a museum dedicated to fandom. We have an example like that on the show today. It's called the Chicago Game Space, and it is an attraction out of Chicago that focuses on the history of video games and their their cultural impact, and really which video games hit our culture the hardest. I have two gentlemen on the show today named John Kinkley and Ethan Johnson who want to talk about what this game space has been up to, including a great exhibition on the history of the game Qbert. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit more toward the end of the show about why I'm doing this and what I'd like to get out of it, but... I want to get right into it because if you'll notice in this episode, we jump right into the chat and keep moving. So let's go ahead with John Kinkley and Ethan Johnson. My my name is Jonathan Kinkley. I'm the owner and chief curator of Chicago Game Space. Uh, It came about in 2020, uh, a fine time to start uh, a new space devoted to video games. uh, right in the midst, uh, the early onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. But, you know, there was a certain clarity uh, that I was able to approach the project with. And, um, you know, the original vision was um, Chicago Game Space would be a, a video game museum whose mission it is to um, to to display um, and, and create fun and, and educate the public on games that are of special timeless significance and importance uh with with a focus um especially in these early years on on the games that were the most influential and important to video game history uh beginning with the first video game that that is uh space war um and um ending um you know, we do allow a little bit of critical distance, you know, we feel like nobody knows what the best game of 2023 is going to be, you know, 50 years from now. So we we allow ourselves a little bit of critical distance. Um, right now, um, we're also limited by, by the amount of real estate we have, you know, so we kind of end more or less around uh, the year 2000. So, you know, uh, showing, showcasing uh, arcade, console, experimental and and um uh pc games you know for for those basically you know first 40 or so years of video game history 
Um, and so we've had, um, we have as part of game space, not just the, the video game history collection, uh, where we invite people to play their way through video game history, but we also have rotating special projects such as the current um, art, sound, and design of uh, Qbert uh, exhibition, which ends this coming Sunday uh, that I curated along with Ethan Johnson, who uh, was lucky to have join as uh, assistant curator uh, and uh, gallery assistant in um, uh, a little over a year ago. Um, he's been a longtime friend of GameSpace. Uh, but it joined on in that uh, official capacity at that point. And um, uh, and we also have a, a video game archive and, and library that, that we're building behind the scenes. And Ethan is with us today. Mm -hmm. That I am. I'm a video game historian. That's how I kind of got into the middle of all of this. It just so happened that this exhibition was... Uh, opening up right in my backyard uh, as I was helping on Tim Lapatino's Pac-Man Birth of an Icon. I uh, He uh, invited me over to the Pac-Man show that they did in 2021. And I uh, realized that it was very close by to me and eventually pestered Jonathan enough that uh, I'm the on-site co-curator. Uh, so I'll be the one that you'll see if you come by Chicago Game Space. And um, I, Ethan is, is kind of underselling his role as historian. Uh, I mean, honestly, nobody I've met knows more than video game history than Ethan Johnson. Uh, he's, as far as I'm concerned, Chicago's um, uh, most knowledgeable video game historian, along with some amazing specialists uh, here in the city. But in terms of breadth and, and comprehensiveness of, of video game history. Um, uh, we're lucky to have uh, Ethan uh, helping us at, at, at Game Space. A lot of useless factoids up in here, I'll <laughs> tell you. A lot of people would think who aren't really into the hobby might think that when we say video game historian, we're being very tongue in cheek. And that's not the case at all, because people who, when you study history, you're either studying something that literally just happened or might have happened hundreds of years ago. It's very odd to study something that is like video games where you have only a few decades of history because then you find yourself in a very weird position where you're just starting to realize what you don't know. And there are cases where something that you might have known five to 10 years ago is now unknowable because the source just passed away or the company just went out of business. There's a lot of stuff that's just slipping through our grasp that we're trying to figure out what information do we need to get a hold of right now? Yeah, and there isn't really an academic study of video game history as such. There's a couple people in academia who are working on this, and there's an academic institutions like the Strong Museum in Rochester, New York. But in general, video game history, it's still an amateur field i think is the way to say it an amateur is not derogatory and i definitely consider myself an amateur but because you know just like government institutions academic institutions they move slow so when you're talking about gathering the on the ground data stuff that's mainly been the amateurs including myself i've interviewed some people who have passed away um 
and, you know, just collecting that information so that it can be conglomerated and examined is part of the position. You don't have a data set to work with. You have to, you know, be boots on the ground. And we are, in terms of like a, a field, at a little bit of a luxury because so many of the creators are still with us, although you, Aaron and Ethan, rightfully both acknowledge that we are starting to lose some people. You know, uh, Ralph Baer has passed, um, you know, some really of the most influential creators in game history um, are, are with us, but but not for long. And um, not only do we want to capture that oral history, that living memory, um, but but also, you know, we're we're self-aware as a as a field uh to to be cognizant, like, oh yeah, the clock is ticking. We should get on this. And and fortunately, you know, game space joins the efforts of some other organizations in the field as well as you know some podcasts and uh some authors, you know, who are feverishly attempting to to capture this history while while we can. And for something that's very, very much tied to technology, which is proverbially quick moving, hmm. people didn't really understand. I mean, it took a while to realize that, well, when the experience is quick moving and the fandom is quick moving, the facts that you need to have to understand what's going on are quick moving too. They can move out of your realm very, very fast. And that's something that you, we just now kind of started to appreciate. Yeah, uh, like... Let, let, let's take something very recently that happened the the uh, game awards show that just happened uh, this last week um where it's kind of focused around the hype the new what's coming up and uh that hasn't always been the case but the fast moving nature of technology who really cares about pong when we're you know even 10 years out Nobody's playing it anymore, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have a place in the conversation. And that's something that I think it's been difficult to to keep a hold of because of that that endless cycle. And when you talk about the conversation, that's what I like about Chicago Game Space is that it is taking part, not just the games themselves and giving people like a, a chance to just walk up and play them. Or, or putting them up on a pedestal, it, it kind of embraces the cultural impact of the games, what it felt like to be in that moment in time and appreciate the industry as it was when Mortal Kombat 2 came out, when Pong came out, when Super Mario Brothers 3 came out. Yeah, you're right. Um, we do try and offer through our educational facets a little bit of the, the cultural context, you know, which these things emerge from. You know, we share a little bit about how they were received, you know, the who, the journalistic who, what, where, when, how, and why of how they were made, how they came about, the context they were created. But also, like, we do, a, you know, it's kind of an imperfect formula for the calculus of which games are selected for on display. But in my mind, what's absolutely critical is that, is that they are uh, they have the criteria that they are timeless you know these are games that have fundamental gameplay elements that are worth playing again and repeating and learning from and that have stood the test of time to a certain degree 
in that you know these are the games that have uh entered various you know hallowed museum collections or um have been recognized by historians and scholars as, as being of kind of enduring significance and yeah these are the games uh that that we are you know we're not in this to tell the story of every game you know there's there's other organizations that are trying to do that um i think that's exhausting i think there's a lot of media that are is worth forgetting to be honest um and be careful of that what's that be careful there I, <laughs> I, I, i'm gonna stand by that comment um and and uh not to say it's not important to everyone but you know i think you need a history that that you know uh comments on the the peaks you know and not not the valleys of um video game history and that's that's the story i'm most interested in telling I'm not going to ask you to pick on any particular game. I'm going to volunteer to do that for you. <laughs> uh, I'm looking over your shoulder, Jonathan, and I'm seeing a Mortal Kombat 2 machine, one of my favorite games of, of that era. And I'm guessing somewhere in your facility, there is some sort of reference to Street Fighter 2. Is there a reference to Shaq Fu? <laughs> no, and there never will be. Uh, okay, okay. And, and I'm just going to ask... <laughs> What 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 was the criteria? And I'm sure there is a criteria, but what's the criteria that let's says Mortal Kombat two and Street Fighter two make the cut, and Shaq Fu does not? Somebody has to have that conversation. I'm just asking how the conversation goes. It, I mean, there is a certain selective Chicago bias for one, you know, in that uh, of course, you know, we've got uh, behind me. These are arcade one up knockoffs. You know, we have the real deal uh, at Game Space. Um, I'm just in my basement right now, um, uh, but they're a lot of fun to have and, and play. Um, and of course, we've got, you know, Ed Boon and John Tobias uh, with Mortal Kombat 2 and Eugene Jarvis with Defender uh, behind me as well, um, who are just towering fingers, figures in the canon of, of Chicago arcade game history. Um, and... These the Chicago arcade game history is also arcade history in the sense that, you know, during various phases in the 80s and mid 90s, um, you know, the, there there was no better ar arcade experience to be crafted, you know, than one that was made uh, local to us here. And so we are we are. We have a slight bias. We have a slight bias, but I, I feel like it's well, inaccurate. It's, I wouldn't say it's a bias. It's a story that's not being nearly as told. Because, you know, yeah. when you think of the big ones, you know, you may think of Midway, you know, that that's a little outsized. But w when we talk about stuff like Atari and Nintendo, that's that's West Coast stuff. But the mid the Midwest was the center of the coin op industry going back yeah. to the early 1900s. Yeah. Uh, and that's a story mm -hmm. that is not told anywhere, even in Chicago. There mm -hmm. is no like pinball museum in Chicago. There is no place you can go and feel the history that is baked into it. So it's been exciting doing these uh, exhibits that highlight the local history. Pac-Man to a degree highlighted the local history, obviously a Japanese game, but manufactured in the US. Then we did Tron and now we're doing Qbert. And, um, you know, Shaq Fu, 
Uh, I confess, I've never played it, so I can't make a purely, you know, objective <laughs> or subjective uh, diagnosis of of its value. But um, you know, it's 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 a game that draws a smile, a laugh, a spoof. You know, it, it might be, uh, you know, when people whisper, talk about it. You know, uh, there's various games that come to mind. You know, often the most offsided. Is ET as as the worst video game of all time, which I I don't necessarily think is true. I've been persuaded with evidence to think otherwise. But anyway, yeah, th these games are are not uh, worth being being canonized to the degree um, that that the games that we have are you know that have incredible replay value, um, you know, innovative breakthroughs in terms of gameplay. Um, you know, threshold pushing um, uh, graphical displays or art direction um, and really just, you know, have, have kind of echoes and resonances um, throughout history in multiple directions uh, as, as the one, 25 or so games, you know, that we have that comprise the video game history collection. I picked on Shaq Fu for a very specific reason is that it is not a good game. It is not a terrible game. It is a game I actually enjoy, but it does deserve a lot of the jazz it gets. So I feel like it's fair for me to pick on it because I don't totally hate it. Uh, but but you talk about the Midwest and Chicago specifically being an integral part of video game history and coin-op history and that it doesn't get told outside the region. And that's a big deal for me because I'm an East Coast guy. I'm still mm. fairly new to the Midwest so I'm interested in hearing this story. I'm interested in in pursuing as much information as I can about this. Yeah, and like I said, it's really not told all that much, and there isn't really too many places you can go to to learn about it unless you know what the coin op industry is. Mm -hmm. it, it it's a multi layered thing, and it's something we haven't necessarily highlighted in game space uh, so far. There are a couple books you can go to, uh, Dick Bushel's uh, books on arcade and pinball, um, and my friend Alexander Smith's uh, They Create Worlds, Volume 1, um, talks a, a bit about this. If you're interested in learning a bit further, but it is something we definitely want to we wanna look at a, a little bit more. You know, the, the, the pinball is the iconic stuff. Then we have the video games, which are the most widespread, but literally... Most coin-op machines you have ever seen come from sh the Chicago area. And in terms of the East Coast, um, in terms of the representation, in terms of the game space collection at, at the moment, um, Ethan, you'll have to uh, jog my memory, but, you know, I think Donkey Kong was made in, in New York City, you know, Miyamoto's work and no, no, Nintendo no. at the time. I mean, it was I, made in Japan, and then they shipped it to Seattle. So, really, there was no arc. The only arcade game company of like big note on the East Coast, not not even video games. It was um, uh, Ice uh, Innovative Concepts, people who made checks and games like that. That was a, a New York based company, um, as was U.S. Bill billiards was in uh new jersey so it, most of the stuff on the east coast is computer game focused infocom um looking glass stuff like that 
uh, and and it's a bit more difficult to uh, represent those games in a museum format because that's like thinky games. And we've referenced a couple times the Qbert exhibit that you guys had open, and unfortunately, by the time this hits the internet, it's going to be too late for pretty much anybody to see it. Mm. But if this is a great idea, and you got, I'm hoping that you guys continue on this trend because as I understand you you invited in for a celebration of the art of Qbert some of the designers from the game so that they could speak to what that what it was like to create that vision to see it through and see the cultural impact of it 40 years later exactly yeah you know this this is one a, a spotlight we wanted to shine on a unique piece of of Chicago video game history um you know which was um the rare, a somewhat rare uh, arcade video game uh, hit of Qbert for uh, Gottlieb, which is a pinball company. And yeah, for the uh, opening of the project and, and leading up to the conversations related to the project, uh, we were very fortunate to have the support and involvement of, of Warren Davis and Jeff Lee and David Teal, um, who uh, were responsible for the making of the game at Gottlieb and um, each had unique profound contributions uh, to its design and, and audio and, and uh, art. And um, so we were able to, to capture the key stories uh, from the development of the game, as well as um, the discourse that followed the game, you know, it's reaction by the public um, it's sales figures uh, it's, it's duplication in other media um, you know, it's it's aspirations to to build, you know, a Pac-Man type um, mascot, you know, for for Gottlieb, and it's it's um, success in that arena in terms of its supporting to other other media and, and other um, game console systems as as well as uh, television, uh, radio, and film and whatnot, and so um, yeah, just a really really uh, fun, exciting, illuminating project uh, that uh, we hope people will have a chance to to enjoy before it closes for the 17th. And the opening night of the show was just out of this world. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I like the, we got, we got some good stuff for the Tron show, but the, uh, the opening of the Qbert show just it lit a spark under people for coming out. We got Eugene Jarvis there. We got a couple other uh, video game luminaries like Josh uh, Slay there. Um, it, it and people were just lit up the entire of night course. because Warren was, and Jeff were there. Yeah. Yes, the mm -hmm. uh, two two of the people who uh, helped create Qbert were there, and it was a, a fabulous time. Uh, and something I I will definitely remember for a long time which it's always great to get the uh, the creators involved. Yeah. Um, Warren Davis has received, uh, I don't know, some sort of, uh, White Castle issues these designations for, <laughs> um, you know, consumers of notes. And uh, Warren Davis is, is a, a special fan of, of White Castle burgers. They are quite tasty. Um, <laughs> and notably, they are served in, almost cube-like formats you know these there's the square burgers so um we had the evening catered uh with white castle burgers um and we we had um 
you know, uh, some of, of Warren's uh, uh, White Castle uh, pedigrees, you know, um, certificates of, of honor emblazoned <laughs> on the wall. So uh, it was a lot of fun and um, great turnout, you know, it was end of summer, beginning of fall and um, great energy for the room. We got the, the creators, Warren and Jeff, to speak a little bit about their thoughts and their process uh, in making the game and, and what it was like. Um, and uh, as Ethan said, yeah, a, a wonderful, magical night. And obviously you can't just duplicate this project down the road. I mean, everything has to be unique and different, but I'm hoping that the concept or at least the energy that you made here is going to be something mm -hmm. that you, you consider the lays the groundwork for the next thing and the thing after that. Yeah, it's true. You know, as I said, we have the the history collection, and then we do these rotating special projects. Um, and some of them are focused on traditional uh, game history, but also, you know, sometimes we we interweave some new media, um, uh, fine art work as well uh, into the mix. Um, you know, independent creators. Uh, artist creators and whatnot. Um, and we have these special projects from time to time. Um, Ethan and I, along with uh, Jim Zaspi of Logan Arcade and Tim Lapatino, uh, who was involved uh, as co-curator with the um, the Tron exhibition, as well as the Pac-Man exhibition that we've done, um, are all in conversation about um, opening this exhibition uh, early in 2024 about um, the the format wars in the early days of video games. Um, you know, many people know the the Blu-ray versus HD DVD or the um, Betamax versus VHS uh, format wars. But in the video game world, uh, there, there was kind of a display um, format um, uh, battle battle's not the right word but you know essentially there were vector graphics and uh roster graphics and you think of um you know vectors is essentially the computer drawing lines Asteroids. that's what yes. you, you should think <laughs> and roster graphics more of a you know pixelated uh bitmap uh look and so um this is going to be an exhibition comparing and contrasting um those those early days of uh, a vector versus roster graphics. Um, and so we're excited to to bring that exhibition to the Chicago public early 2024. And it just happened to be something that I had been uh, researching for uh, for a book that I'm writing as well. So just happened to nicely slide into my interests. So Ethan, are you on team vector or team roster? Well, there's not a lot you can do with vector being entirely honest here, spoiling the spoiling the war. But um, there, it's it's a beautiful thing when you find a vector game out in the wild. And I've had so many people come in and ask how Asteroids is so bright because we have an Asteroids in there. And they don't, they've never seen anything like that before. And if you've ever been in college or something and you see an oscilloscope, it's it's otherworldly in a certain way. And uh, getting to get a little bit behind the scenes with that is going to be quite fun, I think. In my 
board moments i like to imagine taking a more recent game not not even super recent but something like yeah. doom or metroid and trying to imagine mm -hmm. it in vector form and just to imagine how you would even conceive of pulling it off well have you they you, there's some very neat uh vectrex demos mm -hmm. if you've ever seen those um we are hoping to have a couple Vectrex games compare and contrast alongside mm -hmm. the home versions of the time. And that's one area where Vector was actually way ahead because you could do so much more with the Vector on the Vectrex versus what you could do on, say, the Atari 2600. It was a time when the the limitations of the display at home were so profound that even mm -hmm. a primitive Vector display was gave you a lot more flexibility. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the comparison today between a, a modern computer monitor and a modern HDTV, the difference is a lot slimmer compared to what it was 40 years ago. Exactly. And that's, and that's kind of been a continuing trend for in many areas of video game technology is that the, the difference between the best and the worst today is not that profound compared to the difference between the best and the worst 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, even in the 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 major part of the collection uh, where we t talking about the arcade stuff is kind of we have Space Invaders on one end and on the other end we have Pole Position. Four years, we go from very slow moving black and white imagery with a little painted backdrop to a fully fledged car racing simulator behind the the wheel with very well-defined pixels. It is still pixels, but that that kind of gives you a very nice view on like the, the, the rapid trajectory of graphical technology. It, it's another thing that people are having a hard time understanding now is that the advancement year to year back then was, it, it was amazing because you were just looking at the next magazine, the next commercial, the next, uh, you know, the next teaser, and you would see what felt like a light year of, of progress and improvement compared to today, where it's like you managed to squeak a couple more polygons out of the demo. It, it's just it doesn't <laughs> land the same. Or at least it doesn't to me. I might be weird. I mean, no, you know, there. go ahead, Jonathan. It's easy to see why there are more subscribers uh, to this, the simulation hypothesis of the universe, um, you know. <laughs> most people point to to video games and the rapid growth in terms of the technology that's enabled uh, the higher resolution and poly polygonal count of graphical displays in terms of like increasing the semblance towards realism um that uh as as this um philosophical uh kind of underpinning and um and yeah no the 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 changes were breathtaking, especially in those early heady days. And, um, you know, we try and, and capture some of the key shifts that happened in the industry, uh, especially from the visual angle. What kind of, what would you say were some of the more profound shifts? I mean, obviously, I have my theory, but... obviously you have, uh, you know, pixels to polygons and co uh, black and white to, to color. Mm -hmm. I think they're, I think it's more conceptual stuff. It's more the, the, it's more the gradual improvements, you know, something like doom doesn't come out of nowhere. 
Uh, there were many 3D games that preceded it, many games that were shooters, even by id. Um, but it was a singular moment where it could run on many different types of machines because they had figured out these graphical improvements that you could run on a low CPU level. And that is really the moment where these games became feasible and they became something that was just embedded in the culture. Yeah, and, and to add on what Ethan was saying, you know, some of the, the key moments, you know, Ethan identified the, the black and white to color shift, you know, going from like a Space Invaders to like a Pac-Man or a Galaga, you know, um, we have like some text adventures like Colossal Cave Adventure, um, you know, towards graphical rendering um, as well. You know, you think about the advent of of digitized photography through like Mortal Kombat, uh, for example, uh, which was, you know, pioneered um, in the arcade sector, um, you know, here at, at Midway, uh, for example. Um, as well as you can think about the shift um, to to polygonal graphics that happened in the PlayStation One era and and simultaneously you know in consoles um, and um, so we have kind of key representations of of each one of those moments in in game history and the space kind of gives like I said the the almost a, a historical kind a slice of life for each of one of those little eras there mm -hmm. right exactly you know and we try and add a little video context uh so for example you know behind me we see defender which notably featured side-scrolling graphics defender wasn't the first to do that but perhaps was maybe the best known to do that at the time and we have uh an accompanying uh, video display of a very young Eugene Jarvis talking about, you know, developing Defender, for example. And so, um, you know, we try and have uh, bake in that educational component to game space along with the game, the, you know, having people play the games for themselves directly. We feature several different videos, including clips from uh, Josh Sway's Insert Coin, uh, mm -hmm. some other uh, video game history videos of the like you can find on YouTube by Kate Willert, gaming historian, and me uh, to kind of supplement the the you know writings that we have on the walls and whatnot uh, because it, it is very much you know we want people to come in and have fun but if they want to like really absorb the the information and where these things came from we want to give them at least a little a little hook that will send them down the rabbit hole I've gone down. You'll find, at least I found when studying video game history, that it, a lot of times it comes down to not what was the first thing to do this, but what's the first thing to do this that mattered to most people. Like the Atari 2600 was not the first video game system, but it was the first one that mattered to the majority of people. Or Street Fighter 2 was not the first one-on-one -on -one fighter, but it was the first one that mattered to a lot of people. A lot of times it, it becomes that question of, What's the first one that grabbed people and wouldn't let go? I mean, that is a specific idea of pop culture. 
you know, you, you can look at it in several different ways. You can look at something like, you know, the Street Fighter 2 preceded by ER Kung Fu or by Kung Fu Master, which were both very important in their own time, in their own way. If you consider the culture part as more important than, you know, the technological advancements and things like that, that, that that's just perspective. Uh, I mean, like in my in my video series, I am looking at like the first stuff and I'm finding some very interesting things when I'm when I'm looking at it from that lens. Uh, but, you know, is a, I'm not expecting everyone to know all these uh, all these fiddly little things that were in the background in computer labs. Uh, it, it's just. How how are you viewing the history? These are historical lenses that you can look at the the overall story by. This is something what you know academic historians do, but we just haven't really had that in the realm of video games. Well, but I think you do raise a good point, Aaron, in the sense that, um, and this is this is actually a topic that. Uh, some of the chief protagonists in video game history have spoken to directly, you know, for example, um, you know, uh, Nolan Bushnell in speaking about the early days of Pong and, you know, during the Pong clone uh, wars and legal battles and courts and whatnot, you know, he kind of frequently made the case that like, yes, this is technology that can be replicated, but in order to do it better than everyone else and to market it and to distribute it, that is the true Herculean feat. You know, you think of like David Fincher's, you know, movie, The Social Network, you know, and the line like, uh, you know, by the character, you know, playing Mark Zuckerberg, you know, if, if, if he would have created Facebook, he would have created Facebook. You know, it's like, there this was a very primordial soup of games where there are so many of these you know paddle and ball games emerging in the early days of pong and whatnot but you know there's only one pong and um you know even though ralph bear had you know a, a ball and paddle game you know in the magnavox odyssey and there were other examples out there you know um Pong distinguishes itself, you know, in terms of its its gameplay, you know, from those other examples. You can see through this conversation that Jonathan and I, you know, we we come to we come to terms on a couple things. Nothing nothing ever too uh, violent, but you know, the <laughs> we 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 debate these things. You know, what 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 stands as uh, important and what is kind of the perspective that game space takes, and you know, we find where we're, where we land on that through each exhibit pretty much i would assume that if you guys saw eye to eye on everything you might not get a lot done because sometimes <laughs> these kind of conversations are what really flesh out that what really is going to be what's going to make it matter for the the rest of the exhibit the rest of the the ex exhibition um like ethan for example a minute ago you and i were talking about the difference between the the technological uh just the technological first versus the cultural first. And, you know, I'm just trying to put myself behind your perspective there and, and saying, you know, if I'm looking for the first person to accomplish something technologically, I'm wondering, you know, what programmer figured out how to do it? How did that process come about? How did that 
happy accident or how did that inspiration come about? And that's because, you know, programming tricks, programming techniques are, I mean, having done a little bit, a teeny tiny bit of programming myself, I can respect how much thought goes into trying to solve a problem that seems unsolvable. Yeah. And I mean, throughout video game history, that's, that's half the story because most of these people are just techies. They're not artistic geniuses. They are literally working within the limitations of what they have and happening sometimes to come upon something that's really good. Um, my friend Alex Smith has this thing that he calls chains of influence. Uh, and sometimes when you step back and you look at the landscape, even though things that are not stated as influences, they can actually be pieces of the puzzle in putting together a story. Of, of something one game that i really like to highlight in this is a game called moonlander which uh we're hoping to have up for our uh, vector game exhibit this was pre-arcade this is back in the days when computer labs would have vector monitors it's a game that features uh an overworld uh map it has uh a human character and it has the first easter egg in a video game and so we know a couple of these things did influence later creators, but a couple, but the, but the rest may just be a subtle influence, but it is uh, very possible that it had a larger impact on the video game world than we otherwise know. And you don't find that unless you go searching down every little back alley. Now I'm going to toss out another idea at you just because it's something that I've always kind of thought of looking at really, really old games and, and their evolution. I, just, I feel like there's a couple of experiences that gamers have just kind of always wanted and we've tried to just make in, in more refined terms. Like we've always wanted a, a combat game where we run around and shoot stuff. We've always wanted an adventure game where we feel like we're lost in a big world. Are, are there some areas where that are just timeless concepts and we're not even sure where they came from in terms of genres yes hmm i mean i yeah i'm a big subscriber to the maxim there's there's nothing new under the sun um you know culture is constantly copying and pasting and repeating and and evolving so you can always point to a thing or things that came before something else. Um, I would agree with that. But in the one sense, I mean, video games, and this is the reason why I think they are the most exciting artistic medium that has ever come along, is the sense that they're they're kind of the synthesis of all media. You know, there's there's sound, there's theater, there's visual arts, uh, there's you know gameplay, uh, there's agency, and um, you know, so that that's what's especially compelling for me. But um, but Ian, curious or Ethan, curious what your thoughts are on um, you know uh, Aaron's question. I mean, I'm in deep, so I know. You you could ask me, like, what's the origin of X genre? And I could tell you. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, you think of something like Minecraft, which came out of nowhere in terms of the big popular games of the time. But I could name you about 100 influences for Minecraft, not even digging that deep. 
um, because it's just, you know, it, it is part of a culture. It just may not be the mainstream culture. One example of this that has actually feed into Minecraft is roguelikes. Roguelikes were under the radar for decades and then just suddenly popped up. And now half the indie games you can find are roguelikes. Ethan, you and I are going to have to have that conversation someday because I would have a <laughs> lot of fun with that. Okay, gents, I know the three of us have had a day, all right? But I got to tell you, I appreciate you both being here, and I want to make sure people can find the Chicago Game Space, check out what you're doing on the web if they're not local to the area, and maybe, maybe, maybe plan a trip into town if they can make it happen. So where can people keep track of you guys? ChicagoGameSpace.com and all the usual suspects for the socials um, on Facebook. Twitter slash X and, and uh, Instagram um, and TikTok. Uh, hope people will will give us a follow. Uh, we put out a lot of interesting content, we think, um, and we're certain that people will will appreciate and admire. Um, it's it's really great, you know, for for people of every kind of era in gaming history, and we're getting to the point where you know everyone has some sort of like core primal memory of, of games uh in their life at some point um and uh you know please follow us for updated hours and exhibitions um online awesome all that is going to be in the show notes on my website aaronbossing.com thank, thank you, you guys so much for being here i i really have enjoyed the conversation i would love to have you back anytime a lot of fun awesome. thanks Aaron. love what you're doing have a good one peace I would like to thank John and Ethan for being my guests today, and I would like to thank you for listening. As I was kind of hinting at at the beginning of the show, museums like the Chicago Game Space are one of the best places in the real world for us geeks to get together. We should be seeking these places out. When I talk about it on this show, ideally I would like you to go ahead and plan a road trip to the Chicago Game Space. But I realize geography may make that difficult, and I understand that. So I'd like you to be aware that the Chicago game space exists, but I'd also like you to open up a map and say, what's close to me that might fill the same need or, or might have the same attraction? Or can I put something together myself? Can we get together and have adventures from wherever we are? And if you know of a place or if you're trying to make a space on your own, I want to hear about it. Reach out to me at bossigpodcast at yahoo.com or reach out to me at Aaron Bossig on Instagram, Twitter, or Blue Sky. I want to hear what adventures you're having in geekdom in the real world, in cyberspace, or in your own imagination. This is where the conversation really starts, and I want to hear from you. You can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.